Ellis East Elementary Walkthrough, May 18th. The Stage. As I make my way down the back hallway to the stage, the walls of the hallway are pale brown brick, covering from floor to about four feet off the ground with whitewashed walls above the brick. On my right, I pass the girls' restroom and the janitor's room, while on my left is an uninterrupted wall. When I arrive at the end of the hallway, four paths lie before me. To my right is the boys' restroom. In front of me, there is half a flight of stairs going down to the back door and a full flight of stairs, the back staircase, going up to the second floor. To my left is the door to the stage. Entering the stage, there are three whitewashed walls and the heavy navy curtain which separates the proscenium stage from the gymnasium. When the school was in operation, the stage doubled as the cafeteria and the art classroom. To the right of the door as I enter, there is a blue and green patterned formica table where students return their empty trays after eating. On the wall beside the table is the stage's only window, far enough in the wings not to be visible when the stage was used for its intended purpose. To my left is a small half staircase with a door that leads down to the gymnasium. While the stage floor is a polished wood, darker than that of the front hallway by at least two shades, the stairs are patterned linoleum with small splotches of light green and yellow. The flooring was likely added in the 1950s. I will continue to the far back wall of the stage. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, June 24th, 5.30 a.m. Recorded in the woods behind the school. I've recovered enough from my illness that I feel ready to venture outdoors. My memory of George made me realize I haven't been back in the woods behind the school. Admittedly, I've lived here less than three weeks, but it's still worth exploring. Might not be the wisest to go the central trail with my broken arm and just getting over whatever that illness was the last few days. But I need to find the tree from the George incident or it will continue to nag at me. I've taken four rights when the paths forked and it's starting to spiral inward like I remember. If this is correct, I should be there soon. Weird how it keeps coming back to me. I hadn't thought about this trail in years, uh, but now that I'm walking on it, it could have been yesterday that George and I were here. The paths themselves aren't overgrown, but they don't look like people come back here very often. Okay, the turns in the trail have gotten tighter. 
It really does seem like no one found this place since George was stuck here. The trees have started to grow into the path, but I can still make it through them rather easily. I'm arriving at the tree, stopping right beside it. So there's a large log on the ground. It could have been the big branch George broke with over 20 years of untouched decay, forming a velvety moss. It doesn't appear to be anything underneath the log. I'm now looking in the knot hole of the tree. There is something in here. It's a vellum envelope. There is a tiger charm in it, like the lion I found in the tree in the schoolyard. Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, Assistant Professor of Architectural History, Hollingsworth University, on the establishment of the Ellis Field Archival Shed, recorded in the lot behind the former Ellis East Elementary School, June 24th, 10.45 a.m. Rose, H., and Sierra have just left after helping me move all the items from the basement into the shed behind the school. They're going to hit up the coffee shop, and they invited me along, but I want to spend a little more time with the items we found and take some notes. They're going to stop back with a London fog and a pastry after they finish. Here is a rough inventory of what we've found in the basement. Number one, 26 student desks in three sizes, clearly differentiated for first, second, and third grades. A.G. Plume commentary. See if these can be donated to a school somewhere. They're slightly older, but in good shape. Number two, five tables from the kindergarten classroom, so labeled. Commentary. See about donating these as well. Number three, two metal file cabinets, all empty except for a single drawer of the second, which is full of assorted papers. None appear to be sensitive records or anything of note. Commentary. I eventually want to move these to the room I'm using as my archival research space, but they are heavy and we are currently ill-equipped to move them to the second floor. It was hard enough getting them out of the basement. Number four, various set pieces from elementary school plays, most notably the 1995 production of The Nutcracker. Commentary. I genuinely have no idea what to do with these. They can stay in the shed for now, I guess. Maybe I could see about taking one of the smaller Nutcracker set pieces to decorate Nana's new place, since we saw all three performances of that production together. I think she'd like that. Number five, one physical education parachute, 45 feet in diameter, 32 handles, according to the label on the bag. Commentary. This is coming inside with me. Maybe I can get some people together for a parachute party later this summer? Number six, the cedar chest previously noted in earlier exploration of the basement. Commentary. I really need to look through this thing. 
I've been putting it off. It's too heavy to take in the school by myself with my broken arm. So I'll need to come back out here another time and explore its contents. There's a lock on the chest, but I found some old bolt cutters in the janitor's room. Which reminds me, the box I extracted from the basement is still sitting on the bookcase in my office. I need to go through it as well. I may want to examine them together. Maybe we'll call this basement inquiry. Number seven. A child-sized kitchen set, box of dolls, and other assorted toys from the kindergarten classroom. Commentary. I'm going to donate the kitchen set and most of the assorted toys that are in good condition, though for now, let's definitely keep the creepy dolls locked in the shed so I can decide what to do with them without them sneaking in and murdering me. Heaven knows that's the last thing I need. Number eight, an Apple IIe computer that appears to be fully intact. Physical condition is good, working order unknown. Commentary. I'm bringing this inside and I'll find someone online who knows how to inspect it for me. Hmm. I think I see someone at the gate. Rose? Sierra? Is that you? It's you. Wait! Stop! I still haven't found your necklace, but I have a lot of questions. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Bloom, June 24th, 1.15 p.m. The gate lady, who caused me to cut my last recording short, left before I could talk to her. Disappeared might be a better word, honestly. Rose and Sierra returned within seconds of me losing sight of her, and they must have missed her as well. Who is she? What does she really want? They stayed for a while, and we had a nice talk over the drinks they brought back from the coffee shop. I wanted to ask them whether the barista seemed off, but I think they were already concerned about my story of the gate lady, so I did not ask. I need to drop by the coffee shop soon and have a word with Samantha. The note she left at the gate a few days ago makes no sense. Between her and the gate lady, there are a lot of questions, and I can't seem to find the people I need to get answers from. Mom brought the dogs back a while ago, and we're all here in the guest bedroom, including Roybos. The painters finished with the paint and wallpapering of my room this morning, and have moved on to the guest bedroom that Billy stays in, so it will be ready when he gets back from his conference at the end of the week. I'll be able to move back into my room the day after tomorrow, at which time they'll work on this room, and then the living and dining rooms. I'm clearly still recovering from my sudden illness because I'm so tired. going to take a nap for now.
Journal of Lucy Hobbs, recorded by Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, June 24th, 3 p.m. Entry dated July 1st, 1885. We are two months from the opening of the school, and I fear I have made a huge mistake. The men of the town of Ellisfield have thrice stood by the gate of the school with menacing composure, and John has had to confront them each time. Algernon thinks that I am merely worried about the success of the school, but I am convinced that these men do not wish for us, or specifically me, to be here. I have received multiple letters from Elizabeth and her sister Mary offering encouragements as I prepare for the school year. I fear they do not understand the challenge of starting a school at a location as remote as Ellisfield, Ohio. My goal was to see the ideals of progressive education instituted in teacher training and while there are several normal schools throughout this part of Ohio, the town seems actively hostile to the idea of our school. Over the past few years, Algernon and I have been treated with coldness by the residents as we began the work of starting the school, but those hostilities have heated as the construction of the school has finished. Note from A. Plume. These letters are not presented in the box, though context clues suggest that Elizabeth and Mary are Elizabeth Peabody and Mary Peabody Mann, members of the progressive education movement. The latter was the wife of famed educator and politician Horace Mann. Resuming letter. While the men of the town are reluctant to welcome us, at least some of the women have offered a more warm reception. One Mrs. Messinger arrived at the front gate yesterday with an apple pie that John Algernon and I shared after dinner. Mrs. Messinger has extended an invitation for dinner the next time her husband is out of town. Despite the chilly reception from the town, the building is something out of my wildest imagination. It is my dream made reality and I can feel a distinct personality the more time I spend here. As I walk through the hallways at night, I catch the occasional glint from the light of the gas lamps in the street reflected through the stained glass window in the front door. There is something simmering below the surface, a magnetism that fuels me in my work. At times, it is as if the building picks up on my mood and responds in kind. Entry dated July 3rd, 1885. Last night, I looked out the window of the school and a small group of men from the town were standing at the gate. I am unsure of their intentions, but I fear what they may do. Algernon remains unconvinced that there is a problem, but whenever I meet men from the town in the street, the barely contained anger leads me to believe that my mission, my life's work, or worse, could be in danger. My brother has always been overly optimistic about the open-mindedness of people, believing they are predisposed to give us a chance. Even growing up in our community, he believed that people who criticized us would be more accepting of what we were trying to accomplish if they only understood our goals. Even in the face of outright rejection, he persists to believe this, which is why we have selected this town to start our school. Had it been up to me, I would have avoided this entire state. Entry dated July 5th, 1885. After weeks of little notes shoved under doors and finding rooms rearranged ever so slightly that one begins to doubt one's perception and memory, Algernon finally speaks to me as if the men planned this. He insists that I know the only solution, but I do not think it is feasible. It has been years since our days in the community, and no one was ever 
truly able to make this approach work for any sustained length of time, though Algernon has believed for years that I have the ability to do so. I have instead decided to appeal to the women of Ellis Field. Mrs. Messinger seems like a suitable ally, and perhaps she has friends within the town who would be sympathetic to our cause. I have to do something. I am terrified about what could happen if nothing changes. Twice, I awoke with a start, sweating in fear, convinced that someone had broken into the school. After the second time, I lay awake for hours, unable to rest. The fear that something could happen has made me jumpy throughout the day, unable to focus on my writing or my work. If they are trying to undermine us, it may be working. Entry dated July 9th, 1885. I have persuaded Mrs. Messinger and three of her friends to our cause over dinner last night. They are going to attempt to convince their husbands and the other men of the town that the school should bring new opportunities for growth, which could lead to an increase in business. Hopefully, this will spell an end to our troubles, as I have received three threatening letters just this week. The dinner itself was delightful. I've never been much of a cook, as I've never lived in a traditional home where I would learn such a skill. Even now at the school, we share responsibility, but our attempts at cooking have been dismal. Perhaps more importantly, I have missed the friendship of other women. It has been incredibly lonely working with Algernon to start the school, and my brother has never been much of a conversationalist. John has been a welcome addition to our planning and has been certainly easy to talk to, but his companionship bears the weight of expectations I do not wish to examine. The easy conversation with Mrs. Messinger and her friends lightened my spirits in ways I did not know I needed, and I look forward to continued friendship as my life continues in this town. The youngest of the women, one Miss Arabella Smithson, expressed interest in my work. Upon learning about my education, she asked numerous questions, especially about my time at the university in Massachusetts. She seemed amazed at what we were trying to accomplish with the school. The question hung unasked, but if I had to guess, she wanted to explore the possibility of attending our school. After dinner, I asked her to walk me back to the school. The night was the clearest we'd had in a while, stars on full display, and the wind through the pines brought a crisp freshness. At the gate, I told her, there will always be a place for you here. When you're ready, you know where to find us. She did not reply, but I noticed tears in her eyes as she wished me good night. Entry dated July 16th, 1885. Mrs. Messinger just arrived under cover of night, clearly upset. She tells me that while her husband is sympathetic to our cause, the discussions her friends had with their families went poorly, and they have been forbidden to have any contact with anyone associated with the school, me in particular. She gave me a letter from the broken-hearted Miss Smithson, which I cannot bring myself to read. My soul aches at the idea that she is being denied access to the education she desires. I was also given more context for the hostile reception we have received in Ellis Field. It appears that over the past few years, a more reactionary element has gained prominence in one of the churches in town. They are led by a man named, curiously, Jimmy Abstention, who seems to be peddling a sort of Calvinist predestination fused with an in-group mentality. While I am not unfamiliar with the sort of closed-minded sentiment that I have made it my life's work to combat, the views of members of this group 
seem both extreme and also uniquely focused on keeping anyone unlike them out of the town. Algernon overheard this conversation and told me, without even checking to see if John was within earshot, that I had no choice but to act, and we both knew how. I managed to restrain myself, but I did tell him that he was always reckless and far too willing to rely on abilities that were not his own. I then rushed up to my room to write this. I don't know what to do, but it certainly appears as if matters are escalating to a boiling point with members of the town. Still, I am furious with Algernon. His carelessness, his inaction, the way he has been insinuating that I am overreacting, all the while the situation continues to worsen. Combined with my continued fearful lack of sleep, I begin to doubt my own sanity. Note from A.G. Plume. That the townspeople were hesitant to welcome the school is unsurprising, but the degree of outright hostility seems disproportionate. Their antagonist, abstention, seems to be more cut of the cloth of the fundamentalist movement that emerged much later in the 20th century. I'm not saying rural Ohio in the late 19th century was a bastion of progressive ideals, either by our standards or by those of the time, but something about his description makes it seem as if he was the regressive product of a much later time, specifically the fundamentalist movement arising in the latter half of the 20th century. Entry dated July 20th, 1885. The subtle escalation of hostilities continues. Chalk messages have been written on the brickwork of the front of the school building, along with threatening letters delivered every morning. I am even more certain that some of their number have been inside the school when we have left the building, even though we are certain to make sure it is locked. There have also been noises coming from the woods behind the school every evening that I am sure are not wild animals. I am frightened by the welcome our students will receive when they arrive in Ellis Field. My hands shake as I work now. I have misplaced several items with a level of carelessness that is not in my character, and I find them in the strangest places. I can no longer tell what is my doing and what is the work of our unwanted visitors. Even though Algernon believes the men are hostile, he thinks that more of the problems inside the building are my own anxieties. I am not safe here. I fear that if any of our critics in the town were to learn of Algernon and my origins, the situation would further decline. Given the welcome the community received when it was active and the circumstances leading to its dissolution, I can only imagine how we would be received in Ellis Field if our backgrounds were to become known. We are already outsiders, but if it were discovered that we were members of a largely misunderstood community, I fear that it might take the situation, which is already highly tense, to a boiling point. Entry dated July 23rd, 1885. In the midst of a lightning storm that continues to rage, Algernon has just chased one of the men we've seen at the gate from the school grounds after finding him in my office. We do not know for what reason he was here, but his presence was unnerving and I feel as if our space has been violated. My brother has given me an ultimatum. Either I act tonight or he will leave town, and without his presence, I do not know how long I can forestall any conflict. While I believe John will stay, there is a chance that he will not, and even if he does, the appearance of impropriety of an unmarried man and woman could create further problems within the town. 
In light of that, I must prepare for the procedure and hope that if nothing else, it can buy us some time. I am unsure of what will happen as the procedure is physically dangerous to the person performing it, but I have truly run out of options at this point. Entry dated July 24th, 1885, Sunrise. It is done. I will say nothing more of the matter. Entry dated July 28th, 1885. Over the past four days, the air in Ellis Field has lightened. Even though we are in the middle of summer, it has the spirit of early spring. Gentle rains in the afternoons. New flowers are beginning to bloom at the edge of the forest, causing the winds to blow a soft bouquet. The temperature has been rather mild, and I find myself needing to wear a shawl in the evening. It is as if the town has been reborn in the aftermath of the procedure. The people in the town have been thawing as well. As I walk down Main Street, I am greeted with smiles from both men and women. The grocer and the baker have both engaged me in extended conversation about plans for the school, offering to provide us with goods for the opening. The mayor has reached out about festivities to welcome the students to town. Most excitingly, Miss Smithson called on us at the school today. She has asked about the possibility of starting classes earlier than anticipated and will be joining us as a first-year student in the fall. She stayed for tea and we talked for two hours about her goals and the core tenets of progressive education. Her enthusiasm for education is refreshing and I sent her home with a few books to prepare for the term. She has initially expressed some concern about being able to afford tuition, but we agreed to waive fees in exchange for part-time secretarial and library assisting work, which is mutually beneficial. Curiously, Mr. Abstention has been quiet since all of the changes have arisen. I will continue to monitor his behavior in the event that he poses any further threat. There was some talk about the possibility that he was leaving town for a while, which would be most advantageous. Commentary from Anna Georgina Plume. I will stop here for now. While answers may emerge as I continue through the journal, there are certainly a number of questions that arise from this entry. There seems to be no context clues for what exactly Lucy was talking about in terms of the procedure or her method of smoothing matters over with the town, though she certainly seems apprehensive about it. Future action items. Number one. Look into this Jimmy abstention character. Who was he? Where did he wind up? Did he cause further problems? Number two, follow up on Algernon Hobbs. I had flagged this for earlier and forgot to do so in my illness. Number three, look into the Hobbs sibling's life before moving to Ellis Field. Certain oblique references in Lucy's writing suggest that there is a story there that is compelling. Number four, The name Messinger seems familiar to me. I do not believe there are any families of that name currently living in Ellis Field. I should look into where I know it from. Ellis East Elementary Walkthrough, May 18th. Moving forward, there are 10 rows of student lunch tables perpendicular to the curtained edge of the stage. Each row has two lunch tables with attached benches on either side. During lunch, students would file in, filling the closest tables first, usually only filling the first two or three rows. Art class and lunch never overlapped, 
but the art classes would fill the tables starting in the back, usually filling two rows of tables, sometimes spilling into the third row if more space was needed for projects. Along the wall behind the back row of tables, there are three metal cabinets for art supplies and a wire rack for drying student paintings. In the far back corner, on the outer edge of the school, is a wooden door to a small room. The room holds a small table lined with sunflower contact paper and four wooden chairs. This served as the guidance office, though it was rarely in use. Carved into the paper on top of the table is a circle with a diagonal line across it. In the four corners of the stage, there are more blue velvet curtains, each tied to the wall. Walking along the outside of the curtain, the edge of the stage curves upward with an assortment of colored light bulbs under the curve, footlights for student performances. I follow the edge of the stage back to the small staircase to continue down to the gymnasium. Lavender Evening Fog is a fiction podcast. This episode was written by Victoria Dickman Burnett, directed by Ben Baird, and produced, mixed, and edited by Nick Federinko. Executive producers are Ben Baird and Victoria Dickman Burnett. The voice of Anna Georgina Plume is Victoria Dickman Burnett, and the extra footsteps in the woods were Izzy Zalat. The Lavender Evening Fog logo was designed by Allison Dickman, and our season two concept art was designed by Matt Lowe. This episode is brought to you by the moment in which things take a turn for the absurd. This episode pairs well with a first flush Darjeeling. Stay tuned after the credits for a short trailer from our friends at Care and Feeding of Werewolves, a podcast for all your paranormal medical needs. My name is Hazel Thornton. I grew up in the safest place possible. In the house of my grandmother, It's not a normal house. On summer breaks, I'd help her redo the spells that keep humans from noticing anything out of the ordinary. It's just as weird as I remember. Is Otto pumping that dude's head? That is a miniature dragon. Does this look like a veterinarian's office? Nowhere near as safe. Hazel, I'm so sorry. You need to get down here. Nana Rosemary's missing. I've taken a leave of absence so I can cover the store until Nana's found. I need to find my grandmother, Rosemary Thornton, and the rest of the missing. If you hear anything, contact us at feedingwerewolves at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter at Care Werewolves or Care and Feeding of Werewolves on Facebook and Tumblr. More details about the missing will be posted there. Updates will be broadcast every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, please stay safe.